the mission to find the Titanic was actually a cover mission for a top-secret mission I was really on for the Office of Naval Intelligence. And the stars came out, turned off my flashlight, and realized I could see the engine instruments in the, the cockpit by starlight. And it was just... It was magical. It was amazing flying, flying out over the Sahara Desert at night. Even though I was in a pretty dangerous emergency situation, it was still jaw-dropping, inspiring. Another one of these little lost valleys, the world's tallest tree, the world's actually tallest living thing. It's a redwood named Hyperion. From the bottom of the ocean to the tips of the mighty redwoods and beyond into outer space, Constant Wonder goes exploring today. I'm Tenery Taylor, and our team has mined our archives for stories of adventures to otherworldly places that are both beautiful and strange. Perfect listening for your summer road trip or relaxing by the pool. Come travel with us to places that few people will ever get to see in person. We're going to start off here with host Marcus Smith talking to the noted author and explorer Richard Preston. He's going to take us far into the upper canopy of the world's tallest trees. Back in the 1990s, some intrepid tree climbers did what, according to Preston, had rarely been done after Europeans moved into the Americas. And their tools would have made Lewis and Clark so jealous. I don't think that I or anyone else, not even the National Geographic Society, understood that portions of the redwood forest were really literally unexplored. But there was a handful of dedicated, fairly eccentric amateur naturalists poking around in these tiny little notch valleys on the coast of California that are filled with literal rainforest. It is extremely difficult to move through some of these redwood groves and territories. Uh, these valleys are steep-sided, clogged with huge trunks that have fallen down, building up kinds of walls that you actually have to crawl under or through. And it would take these guys, even though they were young, experienced, and really tough, it would take them up to 8 to 12 hours to move one mile through this territory. And they carried special measuring instruments with them, lasers, which they used to then measure the heights of the trees that they were encountering. And at certain occasions, they would walk into an absolutely spectacular grove of giant trees that was unknown to science, unknown to explorers. These are groves of redwoods. One was named the Grove of Titans. Uh, another one is the Atlas Grove. These groves are probably as old as the Parthenon, that great building in Athens. These trees are immense, old, and hugely complicated trees. This is a place a person could get very, very lost, I'm guessing. Well, worse than that, you could die pretty easily. And as, as these two explorers explained to me, one of them is a guy named Michael Taylor. And, you know, they usually went in pairs because if you walk along the redwood forest floor in these, in these little notch valleys, you're not actually walking on the ground. You're walking on a maze or a network of branches that have fallen down, trunks. The ground will suddenly open up below you where you could crash through and fall 15 feet to the ground. Or you could get down in there and easily break a leg falling into that stuff. If you broke a leg and you couldn't move in that rainforest and nobody knew where you are, you would literally never be found. This grove of titans, its location was kept secret for several years once it was found. Let me introduce you to a few of the people who knew where it was during that time, according to Richard Preston. There was a canopy scientist named Stephen Sillett, and his wife, another scientist with the fabulous name of Marie Antoine. And then there was Michael Taylor, whom we've met. Now, Taylor often worked with another naturalist named Chris Atkins. Together, these two made this discovery. The two of them discovered in another one of these little lost valleys the world's tallest tree, the world's actually tallest living thing. It's a redwood named 
Hyperion. And the last I heard, it was just a shade over 380 feet tall, which is 38 stories. So if you took that tree, Hyperion, and you put that in midtown Manhattan, it would stand out. I was a member of the four-person climbing team that made the first ascent of Hyperion a few months after it was discovered in 2006. Take us up there. You've got to take us up there. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's some tree. So uh, the base of the tree is about 14, 15 feet across, which is makes it a, a modest-sized redwood, at least in terms of girth. Stephen, Sillett, Marie Antoine were the lead climbers. And then I and my climbing partner, a guy named James Spickler, were, uh, we were the second team to go up. We first had to hike our gear into this through this absolutely impossible rainforest. It was a very difficult hike, and we had, to, we had to crawl under a huge pile of giant redwood logs. It's like caving to get into this valley. Uh, we got to the base of the tree. We set up our gear, and then Steve Sillett has a high-powered bow, a compound bow, and he shot an arrow up into Hyperion, went up about 200 feet or more, and the arrow is trailing a thin line. The arrow comes back down to the ground, and you now have a kind of thread-like line going up into the crown of this tree. And they use that line to drag a rope all the way up to the top of the tree to where the arrow went and then down to the ground again. They tie one end of the rope to the ground, and then you put very sophisticated climbing rig. Uh, you put on a harness. You use these, these rope ascenders. These are complicated devices that climbers use for climbing straight up a rope. And uh, you get on that rope and you start climbing. Philip and Marie Antoine made it to the top. And we're, you can only talk with people on a walkie-talkie radio. Shouting is absolutely impossible. And when you get up into one of the crowns of one of these giant trees, you can't see the ground. You can't see the sky. You're somewhere between heaven and earth in a, a labyrinth of branches. And the branches typically have a lot of things growing on them, even small trees growing on the branches of these giant redwoods, but hanging gardens of moss, beds of soil. Some of these branches, the branch itself may be a thousand years old, and then over a thousand years, dust that comes down out of the atmosphere lands on the branch, and it will accumulate very slowly until there can be up to uh, two to three feet of dirt called canopy soil sitting on top of the branch, and then the dirt is filled with living things. My partner and I, we climbed below Philip and Antoine, and we were measuring the tree as we went along. We had a tape line, and every 10 meters we stopped, actually every 10 feet we stopped, and measured the girth of the tree. This was to get an estimate of the actual volume and mass of, of this amazing living thing. And meanwhile, we're talking on the walkie-talkie with the lead climbers, and Marie Antoine said, at one point she broke in and she said, oh my goodness, uh, I'm seeing ants here. These ants are like no ant I've ever seen before. They're golden in color, and they're only in the top of the tree, nowhere else. And we talked about it later, and we, we figured that that was almost certainly an unidentified species of ant that lives in the tallest redwoods that's never been seen or noticed by science before an ant that doesn't have a name. And we couldn't even be sure that that ant lives anywhere except maybe in that one tiny little valley. Uh, ant species can, you know, they, they can occupy very small spaces. So it was just one of those things where, you know, we found something that had never been seen before in the world's tallest tree, and that ant has never been seen again. Steve Sillett and Marie Antoine have climbed Hyperion a number of times. They climb it once a year to measure it, and they've never seen those ants again. The canopy structures, the living things up there, are as delicate as a coral reef. And it's really like a coral reef in the air. As you go higher and higher in these giant redwoods, the, the species of life that you see change. The life forms change. So the trees are very stratified, just the way a coral reef is stratified. As you go deeper and deeper, you see different kinds of corals in deeper water and different species of fish. When the scientists get up into those trees, they began digging around in the soil, and they found wandering salamanders. That's a species. Nobody really knows what they do in the redwoods, but it has been established that they never touch the ground. But these salamanders live their entire life cycle up in the branches of the redwoods. And they also found giant pink earthworms of an unknown, unnamed species no one knows how these earthworms in the sky got there, 
They don't know what the worms are doing there or how they carry on their lives. They just find them there. The canopy soil also has these hanging gardens of ferns. These gardens are vast. Um, the ferns are attached to the limbs, the giant limbs of the trees. They grow in soil, and they accumulate in masses of many tons. Uh, it can be 250 feet above the ground, 25 stories above the ground. You find yourself in a, a lost garden. Now, these things are these structures are incredibly delicate. Uh, it's estimated that for some of the mosses and the lichens that occur on these branches, uh, that it takes a minimum of 600 years to form one of these aerial gardens. And if you go through just a kick of a boot, can knock 600 years worth of life off a branch. So we had to be exquisitely careful as we were moving around. And Steve Sillett and Marie Antoine will, when they get into very delicate areas, they take their boots off and they climb barefoot. You wear soft clothing, you wear boots that have flexible, soft soles, and you never reach up and grab something without knowing exactly what you're grabbing, because you might be grabbing some beautiful structure that's hundreds of years old. Richard Preston is the author of The Wild Trees, A Story of Passion and Daring. From the dizzying heights of Hyperion and the Grove of the Titans, we're going to go even higher to the tips of volcanoes. Now, you may have been to Yellowstone or Mount Rainier, and you may dream of going to Mount Fuji or Mount Kilimanjaro. Keep those dreams, because the volcanoes we're going to visit next are, well, rather the stuff of nightmares. Earth's evil twin is part of our next story, and I promise you'll love the ride, but still be thankful your feet are planted on terra firma right here on Earth. Here's part of my conversation with Robin George Andrews, a volcanologist, science writer, and author of Super Volcanoes, What They Reveal About the Earth and the Worlds Beyond. On Earth, the biggest volcano we have is about 2,000 square miles at its base. Pretty big. That's pretty big. You could squash any city you like with that. But on Mars, you have Olympus Mons, which is a ludicrously massive volcano. It's three times higher than Everest, and it's as wide as the state of Arizona. Even that pales in comparison to something called Tharsis. Tharsis is like a giant magmatic volcanic pimple on the side of Mars, and it's three times the size of America. And it, it grew so big so quickly that it tipped Mars over. I think it's my favorite thing to tell people. Like a volcano got so big, the planet tipped over, which is like being in London and suddenly moving to the North Pole. No. Um, the Sahara Desert suddenly moving to you know Paris. It's, it's like an insane thing. Normally it takes planets crashing into planets to tip planets over. Mars just tipped itself over because it got a bit carried away. <laughs> and when did this happen and who recorded it tipping? Uh, so it happened a few billion years ago, really. People are still trying to work out, you know, exactly the timing of it. But it turns out that Mars once had rivers and ocean. There's an ocean in its north, and it used to be the red planet used to be a blue planet to some degree. And people are still debating as to how blue it was. Mm-hmm. But it certainly had oceans everywhere. And oceans, as you would expect, have shorelines. And it turns out that Tharsis, this mass- massive volcanic pimple, was so big that it actually deformed the surface of Mars. It was like, it's like dropping a cannonball onto like a, a bowl of custard <laughs> or something, or, a, you know, onto a trampoline. Mm-hmm. The whole surface rippled because this volcano got so big. And it turns out that scientists are clever enough that they actually could almost like reverse time to see what the original coastline and shores and what the planet should have looked like mm-hmm. without this volcano being there. So they kind of did some detective work and they said, well, yeah, this... Uh, <laughs> This volcanic province just tipped Mars over. It actually couldn't get any bigger. If it got any bigger, it would have sunk back into Mars. So it's kind of, Mars is kind of like an extremist, (laughs) I suppose. (laughs) An extremist passes time. (laughs) All right, let's go from the extremist to the evil twin planet, Venus. um, And tell us why it's got such a bad rap. Well, Venus and Earth, if if, if Earth and Mars are, are cousins, planetarily speaking, um, you know, Mars is a bit smaller, it's a bit colder, it's a bit further away. Venus and Earth should be sisters because they're made of the same stuff. They're right next to each other. 
they formed pretty much at the same time. So it's pretty weird that Earth is kind of paradisical, whereas Venus is the worst place you could possibly imagine. If someone was having a bad day, if there was an all-creating deity who was having like a horrible day, they were hungover, it was like a Thursday, and they had to make a planet and they were in a bad mood, Venus is the planet they would make. If you walked across the surface of Venus, you'd be simultaneously crushed, eaten alive by acid if you flew slightly high enough, and uh, you'd burst into flames and melt. It's the worst place. It's like being in an oven a mile underwater. Absolutely horrible. <laughs> so that's why people call it Earth's evil twin. It's like Earth where something went horribly wrong. Someone like left the oven on for too long and everything burnt down. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of amazing, actually. And volcanoes are part of the cause of that problem. Yes, the leaving. So there's two theories about what happened to Venus. <laughs> One is that being close to the sun, it was always a bit too hot. So the water it had, and it used to have an, an ocean's worth of water. You can see the chemical ghosts of that in the atmosphere. Maybe it was always so hot because the sun was just getting very excited in its youth and it boiled off all the water. And um, water being a greenhouse gas meant that Venus was just always a hot, horrible place. But the leading theory now is that Venus was an ocean world like Earth. Perhaps for billions of years, maybe not that long ago, Venus used to have the equivalent of the Pacific Ocean there. Maybe it was full of life, but we don't know because somehow the whole surface turned into a melted apocalypse. And the main idea is on Earth, every now and then in its history, you get these epic eruptions. Uh, and by epic, I mean they take two million years to kind of complete, you know, million year scale eruptions. It's hard to imagine how long these eruptions go on for. There was one that happened uh, 252 million years ago that triggered a global warming offensive that caused the worst mass extinction on the in history, in Earth's history. It wiped out 90 plus percent of all species. And this eruption happened for one to two million years. And again, humans have only been around for about 400,000. So an eruption has happened on Earth that went on many times longer than our species has existed. The idea is on Venus, there have been maybe uh, several of these at the same time. And that just caused the planet's climate to go so badly wrong with all this carbon dioxide and all this water vapor that the planet then couldn't adjust its thermostat back. It just lost control. And so it kind of entered a runaway greenhouse state and everything got very hot. Plate tectonics broke. You know, the, the Earth's machinery broke down. It couldn't get any colder. Volcanoes just started erupting everywhere. So it's, it's like as apocalyptic as you'll get. And it only took one or two more of these eruptions happening at the same time. And that's the big question. And that's why it's called Earth's evil twin, really, because people don't know what's normal. Is Earth normal or is Venus normal? Should most planets our size turn into a volcanic hellscape or should they be like Earth? So when you hear in the news, oh, they found an Earth-like planet orbiting another star, they could be saying Venus-like planet. They don't know yet if it's more like Earth or more like Venus. So that's why they're sending so many missions to Venus now, because they want to know, is Venus unlucky or is Earth lucky? And I think that's the most fascinating question in all of planetary science at the moment. That was an excerpt from a conversation I had with Robin George Andrews. Let's get back down to Earth now. In just a moment, I'm going to take you to the remote Mongolian steppe on a visit with a photographer who preserved in film a vanishing way of life and some exceptional relationships between hunters and eagles. I'm Tenery Taylor here on Constant Wonder, and we're calling this episode Summer Shorts, excerpts from conversations we've loved that took us places we're likely to never have the chance to visit in person. Here's Marcus Smith again, this time chatting with photographer Polani Mohan. Now, Mohan was lucky enough to travel to Western Mongolia to document the ancient Kazakh tradition of hunting with eagles before that tradition dies out. See... There are fewer golden eagles than there used to be, and young men coming up are giving up on the harsh winters and moving to the cities, not so interested in hunting anymore. There are festivals that celebrate eagle hunting, but only a few dozen people could actually be called true hunters. In this selection, Marcus began by asking how these hunters find an eagle that will make a good hunting partner. So the hunters are looking for an eaglet, which is about four weeks old. Old enough, so the bird has seen and tasted a fresh kill, but not too old that it can't learn to live with humans. Uh, they're looking for a young bird. 
So the hunters climb up into the rock faces. It's a very dangerous job. And they snatch the eaglets when the mother is not there. And they bring it home. And there they hand feed the bird fresh meat. And this happens for many years. And something truly remarkable starts to happen here. And this is where the bond between man and bird starts to take hold. And the whole project and the most important thing about me doing this is the bond between the man and bird. Um, because, you know, when, when they release the bird into the wild, and you can, the first thing, and I, the first question I had was, why does the bird come back to them? Why doesn't it just fly off? Um, it's because the bird falls in love with them, as the hunters, one, one of the hunters told me. So they feed the birds fresh meat, and after many years, you know, after the bond is established, then they take the bird out hunting. And that's why they, most of the time, they always return back to the hunters after the hunt. And what is the purpose of the hunt? Is this for food or raiment? I would just imagine it's for clothing. It goes back hundreds of years, Kazakhs using eagles to hunt. So the purpose of the hunt is for many reasons. One is for the, for the incredibly beautiful fox fur coats that they wear, and that's where they get it from, before they can shoot them, with, before they had guns. And two, fox meat, food. And three, it's part of being a Kazakh man, and which is you know, and a very important part of being who they are. And, and four, I guess, because they truly love these birds. They want to be with them. Why is it that they don't keep the birds till the end of the bird's natural life? They release the birds, say, at about maybe 15 years or so. Releasing the birds back into the wild is an incredibly important part of the whole, uh, whole tradition, the whole culture. Uh, so the thinking is that we have taken the bird from the mother, and we've taken it, and, and that we, the bird has given us so much joy and so much pleasure. And we don't want the bird to die in our homes. And that's the worst thing that could possibly happen for everyone's concern. So after hanging on to the birds for about 10 years, in the summer months, they ride off with the bird, you know, sometimes 100 kilometers away, a long way away, many days travel away. And they feed the birds um, as much fresh meat as they can possibly eat. And in the cover of night, they say their final goodbyes, they sing love songs to them <laughs> and they let the bird go and they rush back home and there are many many stories of how after the days and weeks after they've let the bird go it somehow finds them and they, it returns back to them and, and with a heavy heart they have to do the whole thing all over again that's remarkable and did you learn about this firsthand as an eyewitness I never went on um, a three-day trek for them to say goodbye to their birds, but I know that what they're saying is absolutely from their heart because one of them cried when he was talking about it. These are the toughest men that, I've, that you could met, and they all have hands like sandpaper. Um, and they, they get very emotional when they, uh, when they talk about their birds. It's the only time that they get emotional. They talk about saying goodbye to their birds, um, and it's like you know, it's like saying goodbye to one of your your children, one of your loved ones. And the fact that they don't want the bird to come back, um, they want the bird to go off and enjoy, you know, the five, six, seven years, however long the bird's going to live, and 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 mate and have babies of their own. It's just an it's a very important part of the culture, and when when these old guys die off and they are they are old you know so they are in their 70s and it's an incredibly tough environment when, when they die off this culture this is what fades away this is what will you know the young kids that are coming up uh, will, will never will never do so that, that was going back to what I was saying before about the urgency for me to, to do this project and that's the reason why I felt like I had to try and photograph all of them um, to have a record of, of, of who these people are, were. That's the crux right there, who these people are or were, as you put it. Do you see an inevitability in the demise of this practice among the Kazakhs in northwestern Mongolia? Yeah, look, we're talking about 
things that are happening right now. It's a bit like global warming. It's like it's, it's not going to happen in the next generation or in a hundred years' time. Um, the demise of these true eagle hunters will happen in five years, in ten years' time, in our lifetimes, basically, this is going to happen. And, of course, there are lots of eagle festivals that are popping up all over Mongolia, which I think is a great thing because tourists can go and learn about other cultures and it's great for the economy and so forth. But um, a lot of those people are not the real eagle hunters. They are, you know, many of them are there to pose with an eagle, which is fine. So the old guys, uh, you know, they... They're, they're, um, they're dying off, and there is only literally... I mean, when I was doing the project, when I started the project in 2012, there, are, there were about 50 to 60 of them. And I think right now, um, after eight years or seven years away, um, I think there are probably about 30 of them, 40 of them. But it is what it is, and, and, and I'm, it's just been a real privilege for me to hang out with them and, and photograph them. That was Palani Mohan, photographer and author of the book Hunting with Eagles in the Realm of the Mongolian Cossacks. From Asia, let's fly down to Africa with Kerry McCauley. He's the author of Dangerous Flights, What Could Possibly Go Wrong? <laughs> I love that title. And Ferry Pilot, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. Now, a ferry pilot delivers planes to their new owners. Macaulay does that. But he's also willing to fly planes across distances they weren't really built for, like solo across the ocean. Here in this excerpt, he's flying across the jungles of Africa. I won't say I got lost over Africa, but I was pretty unsure of my situation or my exact location for a number of hours. So, so back in the early 90s, I was flying a plane from all the way across the continent of Africa to Tanzania. And my weather forecast was literally a mimeograph copy of a satellite image of the continent of Africa. And no winds <laughs> aloft, nothing. That's like, great, this is awesome. I'm literally flying from Los Angeles to New York with no information at all. This is back uh, before GPS, and I knew I was going to be without any navigational aids for six, eight hours. But at, the, at some point, I would get to a point where on the East Coast that I'd start picking up some beacons. And I flew all day, and it was over just amazing triple canopy jungle and misty, and it was just a crazy adventure. And when I got to the point where I should get the first beacon, nothing happened. Great. Couldn't pick it up. Didn't know if I was lost. It'd gone, of course. That came and went, sun went down, battled some thunderstorms over some mountains. Second time where I should get the beacon came and went, still nothing. At this point, I was quite concerned whether I was way off course and thought about even taking a left and trying to find Nairobi, a big city. You know, these are, these are some of the things we, as a ferry pilot, you know, you really need your geography. You're like, well, if I go too far, I'm going to go over to the Indian Ocean. If I take a left, I can hit Nairobi, you know, but I held my course picked up the last beacon at the airport I was supposed to land at. So that was, you know, very a great relief. Big, yeah. uh, big relief. But when I talked to the, the pilots who lived there, who I was delivering the planes to and told them that story, they, they kind of laughed, said, well, those beacons never work because they're run by generators and the local warlords steal the gas all the time. I'm like, oh, great. Little information I could have used about 12 hours ago. <laughs> Hey, when you're flying over a, a jungle canopy, a triple canopy forest, as you call it, uh, what's your elevation? Are, are you high? Are you down low? Where, where, what Does it matter? Well, a lot of it matters on winds aloft. That particular day, I had no idea what the winds aloft were, so I flew really low. It was cloudy, misty. Um, it was just a really hazy day. Couldn't see very far. So if there's no reason to fly high, I like to fly really low. Um, I love buzzing as it were that's you really get the sensation of speed when you're in a small plane just right over the treetops and you can see all the all the sights you know in africa I, I got to see elephants and giraffes and natives actually walking down trails with loads on their heads like in national geographic which was just insane that i got to see that and other times you know i've Got to buzz down the Amazon River in the morning. I got to go up and down the coastline of Greenland, dodging icebergs. I even got to buzz the pyramids in Egypt one time, which was probably the highlight of my aviation career. They let you get close? 
Oh, no. <laughs> well, we weren't supposed to. I was delivering a plane to Amar Sadat's son, who's kind of a big deal in Egypt. And I picked him up at a different airport. And we flew his his new plane to Cairo. And he asked, you ever see the, the pyramids? Like, nope. First time in Egypt. We got close and there they were. Wow. He goes, you want to buzz them? <laughs> well, yeah. So we buzzed the pyramids and the Sphinx real low three times, giggling like schoolgirls. And, uh, and then we got out of it. He says, okay, even I'm going to have to explain that one. But pretty pretty highly illegal, but we got away with it. <laughs> I'm going to have to reconsider my career having conversations with people who are breaking the law. That could get me in trouble, you know. <laughs> I, I cannot forego this last question. You talk about flying by starlight. I would imagine, why would a ferry pilot be flying uh, by, by night and not doing this in daylight? Well, a lot of times it's just in the wintertime, the days are short. And when you're flying eastbound, they're even shorter because you're going away from the sun. Um, in Africa, if you're going from Morocco down to southern Africa, you fly over the bulge of Africa, over the Sahara at night because in the, a- in the afternoon, down by the equator, it's an area called the intertropical convergence zone. And you're pretty much guaranteed massive thunderstorms every night, every afternoon. So we fly that route at night to arrive down by the equator in the morning when the, when the weather's better. My father used to navigate ships, uh, and he would talk about the stars being pretty important. Did you actually navigate by star? I kind of did one night um, on that... That leg from Morocco down to the Ivory Coast, I lost my alternator and lost all my electrical power one evening and had to fly the whole night by flashlight because everything had gone completely dark. And at first, we were in the cl- I was in the clouds, and it was like flying in a coal mine. And afterward, after I got out of the clouds and my GPS died, I had a GPS with battery, but it died. And I still had eight, eight hours to go, and the stars came out. And I realized I turned off my flashlight and realized I could see the engine instruments in the, the the cockpit by starlight, and it was just it was magical. It was amazing flying flying out over the Sahara Desert at night, even though I was in a pretty dangerous emergency situation. It was still jaw dropping, inspiring, and seeing the clouds or the, the stars above me, and it actually helped me hold my course. That was author and ferry pilot Carrie McCauley. Up next, one of the most thrilling shipwreck discoveries began as a secret mission to gather Cold War intelligence. I'm Tenery Taylor, and this is Constant Wonder. We're taking some improbable trips this episode, and we're going to introduce you now to Robert Ballard. He's a National Geographic explorer at large and the man who found the Titanic among a host of other undersea treasures. But he wasn't even looking for the Titanic when he found it. I mean, he told people he was, but he was really up to something else entirely, something top secret. I was a Cub Scout, Boy Scout, Explorer Scout, Army officer. I was always taught to, on my honor, I will do my best to do my duty and tell the truth. And I had to lie. I had to tell people that I couldn't tell them the truth, that the mission to find the Titanic was actually a cover mission for a top-secret mission I was really on for the Office of Naval Intelligence. We had lost two submarines during the Cold War, the USS Thresher and the USS Scorpion. And in the case of the Scorpion, it went down with nuclear weapons. And we don't like leaving nuclear weapons laying around on the bottom of the ocean. The president, literally President Reagan, issued the order to support the search for the Titanic as a cover through Secretary of the Navy John Lehman and down the food chain to my commanding officer, who was uh, Vice Admiral Ron Thunman. And my orders were to go out and see if the Soviets had visited the site, see if the weapons were still there, assess the environment, what was the nuclear reactor doing to them. And all of that required a thorough, complete photographic documentation of the wrecked site. 
but they didn't want the Soviets to know because they put a satellite on us. As you know, our satellites, surveillance satellites, can be moved around. They have thrusters. So they can move around, and you can task them to go someplace. And we can monitor the Soviet satellites. And so we knew they weren't following me. And, and so they knew I could go and not be detected. So that was really what I was up to. But, yes, finding the Titanic, I can remember... The Admiral was actually upset when I found the Titanic. He said, Commander Ballard, your job was to look for the puppy. Don't find it. And I've always operated by the maxim, uh, never ask permission, beg forgiveness. So I apologize <laughs> to him for fine. So I'd never do that again. Have you repented of that sin of dishonesty? I mean, you know, uh, I, I, well, you know, it was intelligence gathering. It was very important. Yeah, I did my job, uh, but I had embedded in my team, I had a real difficult problem because I had people who didn't know what I was doing on the ship. I had a National Geographic film crew. I had French scientists. None of them were supposed to know what I was doing, and they were on the same ship with me. And I remember the ship we left from the Azores. It was my research vessel, NOR, and I was terrified that they would see that I was going in the wrong direction because the Scorpion is south of the Azores, and the Titanic is west. And I was waiting for them to say, why is the sun in the wrong place? It's supposed to be rising on our stern and setting on our bow, but it's rising on our port and setting on... Well, they weren't watching. (laughs) And then I stopped, uh, they thought, halfway to the Titanic, and I stopped and I said, well, i got to spend a few days testing this technology because the Navy funded I had one person that was recognized as a naval officer whose name was Lieutenant Commander George Ray, and he, I said, was with the Office of Naval Research, which was a lie. He was a naval intelligence officer. And I said, he's here to let us check out the testing of this equipment because they paid for it, you know, for, and they want us to test it. But they didn't know that embedded in my team were two other intelligence officers, and they were women, because, you know, how chauvinistic we are. These women were data loggers, like heck they were. They were intelligence officers, because we were working 24 hours a day in this command center that had a secure door, and four on eight off shifts had three teams. Now, my team... My team knew what we were up to, but no one not on my team did. So we just said, well, you just can't come in the room for a while. And we were sitting on the Scorpion, and they didn't know that. So, so, yeah, so pulled it off. let me get this right. You're on the vessel that's that has the submersible that you're going to go into to go deep. These are robots. No, no. Oh, this, oh robots. This is done with robots. We went back. You know, I've used submersibles, but they never find anything. We have to find them hydrothermal vents, Bismarck, all of the things I've ever found, I find with underwater robots. The reason is, when I dove to 20,000 feet, which is a ways down, it took me six hours to get to work in the morning and six hours to get home in the evening. Well, that's 12 hours. And if I'm going to do it the next day, how much time do you have in the bottom? Minutes! When I went to the Titanic, it was two and a half hour uh, down, two and a half hour back. These submarine can only spend a few hours. But with robots, they don't come up. So you, the Titanic so, discovery was not in a submersible. It was with robots. No. Went afterwards. We went down and dove on it afterwards. Everything I've ever discovered, we went down afterwards. It was never discovered. Submersibles, you go around in the dark with a flashlight a couple miles an hour, good luck. No, I want a vehicle that's, I'm down there for days and days and days, and you just don't give up till you find it. Here's what happens. I go down the Titanic, and I look at its wooden deck, and the wooden deck's gone. Okay? Because it's been eaten by a, a, what we call a torito or a shipworm. A wooden ships, there was a mollusk that could eat wood. Because we had wood going down rivers for a long, long time. So imagine the Mississippi just been dumping trees into the Gulf of Mexico for zillions of years. And the wood becomes water-saturated, waterlogged, falls to the bottom. And there's an ecology down there that eats wood. They like ships just as well as they like a log. So the Titanic's deck was made out of pine, and the wood borers found it and ate it, and then they died at the dinner table. Their little shells are still there. 
I could have taken the stuff off the Titanic. In fact, when I found the Titanic, I went to the courts and I said, so what's the deal? Well, you own it now under the following condition. If you go back, which I was going back with my submarine to get up close and personal, if you pick up a cup that says Titanic on it, bring it into the court and you will become the owner of the Titanic. We call you the, the owner of salvage rights. And I said, wait a minute, I want to salvage it. No, 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 no. The laws we're reading were written in the 1700s. It's the admiralty laws. And to own something that's been lost at the ocean, you have to bring it up. And I said, I don't grave rob. I don't believe you should touch it. You should leave it alone. Well, then you can't be the owner. And I went, really? And they said, yeah, you can't own it unless you bring it up. Promise to bring it off the bottom. I said, well, I'm not going to do that. So then others said they would. And now we have the circus of salvagers. Robert Ballard, author of Into the Deep, a memoir from the man who found Titanic. He was speaking there with Marcus Smith. We all need to get away sometimes. But after the trauma of Vietnam, veteran Doug Peacock went as far as he could from the jungles and from any other people to discover the world of grizzlies and to shake off the ghosts of war. What he found in the mountains of the American West and from the time he spent in its deserts made him a famous naturalist. Here he is speaking with Marcus Smith, and this is a conversation we're sharing here for the first time. Solitude and wilderness is the deepest well I've ever encountered life, and it's, it's also human indulgence. I uh, found a lot of solitude, most of it in either, you know, down in the vast deserts of southwestern Arizona or up in grizzly country, what trips they were. You know, you're looking, you're down there, especially down in the desert. Sometimes it's 40, 50 miles to a distant mountain range. And it seems impossible he could go there because you know there's a tank of water in those mountains and you got to get there or you die. And you just look at it and say, well, boy, that, you know, I don't know. It's going to take me three days to get over there. And then you just do it. I used to think that I usually go from the desert up to grizzly country in the springtime. And if I had adequate time, I'd just walk up there. You know, you can walk anywhere. You talk about wanting to be invisible, and some of this is the legacy of having spent time hiding from the Viet Cong in the jungles of Vietnam. Truly, it was, you know, it was a... You know, that's a pathology, at least in the early years. I absolutely treated my sojourns into the wilderness like... I would have escaping and running for my life in the jungles of Vietnam with the Viet Cong chasing me. I had one close call, and uh, I carried that scar like a cancerous lesion for many years. And I just, I couldn't shake it loose for a few years at all. And I'm glad I didn't have to explain myself to anybody because I fit, you know, a half a dozen categories for the truly wacko out there. You know, it's squatting over a, a tiny campfire in the middle of no place and, and hiding your tracks all the time. I, I was on snow. A lot of the early season for grizzly bears, and I eventually filmed grizzly bears full time, and I did it mostly in the spring and very early summer in Yellowstone. And then I'd go up to Glacier and kind of close out the year. But the springtime in, in a place like Yellowstone, back, you know, before climate change and, and global warming, meant that in, in April sometimes you had three, four feet of soft, slushy snow under the trees and across the meadows. So you could only really travel in the uh, mornings and on snowshoes. You know, it was too late for skiing and too early to be on boots because you broke through the crust and you wallowed from about noon on. And I had to plan my uh, days looking for grizzlies that way. I could either find a set of grizzly tracks and follow them. Sometimes you have to follow them for days, catch up with a bear and maybe film them for as long as I could stay out of its way. Or else I'd set up in a place, like a, a thermal area where in the wintertime, bison and elk, but mostly bison, come in and they die of winter kill. There's carcasses around, and that's one place the grizzly bears will check out in Yellowstone as those thermal areas. There wasn't anybody in the backcountry because... because uh, you know, if you tried to travel, even on snowshoes, in the uh, afternoon, 
you'd make it take you an hour to get a couple hundred feet. You know, you break through and go up to your waist in snow and climb back out on top again and break through again. It was crazy. I, I wouldn't trade that time of my life for anything. It was great. Did you go out there amply supplied, or did you have to live off of uh, wild meat and plants? No, in, in Yellowstone, it was hard. You know, about the only vegetable that grew that time of year was watercress and hot springs. And I had to carry stuff, boring food that didn't smell much because I was dealing with bears. Did you think this was normal? <laughs> you know, I, I didn't know the difference. I, I didn't know any better. When I got back to the States, it wasn't any good being around people. And it was spring of 68. The one place I've always been comfortable because of my upbringing and growing up in the woods of northern Michigan is the wilderness. And, you know, I'd experienced the Rocky Mountain wilderness by the time I went to Vietnam. And so when I came back, I just disappeared into the wilderness. I couldn't, there wasn't any good around people. And I kept moving north as the snow melted. I got up to the Wind River Range in Wyoming on the east side. Uh, well, it was early summer. It was June and July. And, uh, you know, the weather's terrible on the east side. That's why those big glaciers are there. Uh, but I came down with a malaria attack, which is not a big deal. I've had a lot of malaria in Vietnam and even subsequently. But I needed to get the hell out of the Wind Rivers. The weather was too wet, severe. The country was glaciated and it was rugged. So I decided I was going to go to Yellowstone, which I knew a little bit. Yellowstone was comparably flat. The weather was mild compared to the Wind River. And I decided I was going to go into a thermal area. And, you know, soaking the hot springs, sort of the, you know, the notion of the old spa means of healing the sick, I guess, was on my mind. And I went in there, and I was hallucinogenic to begin with. And there were grizzly tracks all around. I didn't really know if they were real or not, you know. <laughs> it was uh, my temperature. I recorded it. It went up to 105.6 when I lost my mind. And anyway, a couple days later, I'm soaking in a hot spring. It's actually a little tiny hot creek in Yellowstone. And it's, you know, it's not very big. It's four or five feet across. And I'm in a little bathtub with the hot water going over my shoulders and neck. And I look out across the meadow, and there's a mother grizzly and her two yearling cubs. Well, I didn't know squat about grizzly bears, except you weren't supposed to get close to mothers with cubs. I decided when I was in the hot spring, the, the bears were still quite a ways away, a couple hundred feet or a little more. And I decided that I was going to try to climb a tree when they weren't looking at me. And, you know, they weren't looking at me. They didn't care about me. And it's October. You know, the wind's blowing 40 miles an hour, and it's cold. And I, I was watching the grizzly family. They weren't looking my way, so I stood up and made a lunge for a tree. The tree was really close to the bank of the little creek, so it wasn't very far away. But I blacked out from the whirlpool effect of hot water on my brain and blacked out, smashed into the tree, and cut a gash in my forehead, and the blood's running down my nose, and you know. But I'm so terrified that I scramble to the top of this tree. And after I'd been up there, actually I was up there almost 40 minutes because the Grizzly family chose to graze on some grass and totally ignore me the entire time, even though they came within 25 feet. But I got to the top of this tree, and I found that it wasn't much bigger than a Christmas tree, you know. It was like, I don't know eight feet tall or something. So I'm squatted up there. I'm blue and freezing, bleeding, blood running down my chest by then. And then I, and I perched up there like uh, some species of silly junco, you know, some bird. And I realized something about the bear, that bear was never interested in me at all. A couple years ago, on the same summer in which I was going to walk my daughter down the aisle, my daughter Laurel and I went into Yellowstone Park for kind of a last father-daughter hike, and we've had many of them. She saw her first grizzly bear at Huckleberry Lookout when she was about uh, two years old, so she's got a long history of bears. But we climbed, it was an incredibly windy day in Yellowstone, we climbed a, a high butte in the park, in the northern part of the park, and this was in the spring. And early June for grizzly bears is the mating season. 
boar grizzlies go all over the place looking for receptive females and mothers with cubs tend to retreat that time of year, mother bears, grizzly bears, you know, to cliff faces where they can, you know, sense a little bit of security if they got on a, a cliff and protect their young. The assumption being that male grizzlies are so aggressive during the mating season and as far as the mother grizzlies are concerned, the greatest threat to a grizzly bear cub is another male grizzly. So my daughter and I go up and it's a windy, it's a crazy windy day. The, you know, wind is gusting at 50 miles an hour. And so we get up on top of this butte and I'm sitting there and arm around my daughter. The wind is howling and I look at her face and I see her expression change. And I looked off in the direction that she was looking and coming over a rock, not 50 feet away, I mean, really close, was a mother grizzly bear and her yearling cub. And we all saw each other at the same instant. And immediately, the grizzly bears, both of them, stood up and, and looked around. You know, grizzly bears do that. That's not a threat. It's the opposite of a threat. They do it to see better and to smell better. So the grizzly bear is standing up, and she's kind of slobbering at her mouth, which just shows her degree of nervousness. If I said anything to my daughter, it was, don't move. <laughs> and so we all kind of exchanged the behavioral hints for about three or four minutes. And all of a sudden, the mother grizzly bear drops to all fours and walks over the rise with her yearling cub right past us. And I mean, this is close. And I've spent a lot of time with bears in Alaska and British Columbia. And on a salmon stream, this kind of behavior occasionally happens, but never in a place like Glacier Yellowstone. So this grizzly bear walks past us, not 15 feet away, goes to the edge of the cliff, which is only 10 feet away, and she proceeded to nurse her yearling cub for about seven or eight minutes. You know, you can hear the sound. It's kind of a puttering sound mother grizzlies make when they uh, nurse their young. And, uh, you know, among other things, that means she really trusts us. At one time, the cub started to come up and look at us. I mean, you know, he was only 15 feet away and I had to kind of flick my wrist at him to kind of, you know, it wasn't what he, what he was supposed to do. And, uh, you know, the grizzly bear and her cub, after spending 15 minutes with us at really close quarters, went and walked away. Doug Peacock is the founder of Save the Yellowstone Grizzly. And his recent memoir is, Was It Worth It? A Wilderness Warrior's Long Trail Home. He was speaking there with Marcus Smith. And that's all for this special edition of Constant Wonder. We hope you've enjoyed this collection of summer shorts, excerpts from some miraculous trips we've taken our listeners on over the last couple of years. If you want to hear any of these conversations in full, check out our website at byuradio.org. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka, Daniel McDonald, and Jenea Tanner. Sound design by Parker Schmidt, Mitchell Towsley, and the sound design team at BYU Broadcasting. I'm Tenery Taylor. <laughs>